Welcome to the Coaching Through Chaos podcast, helping you conquer the chaos in your life. Your host is licensed marriage and family therapist, Dr. Colleen Mullen. Dr. Colleen has been doing what she does for almost two decades. She's a private practice owner, a chaostician, a magazine columnist, a best-selling author, and her work or writing has been featured on countless websites including Fortune, Martha Stewart Weddings, Psych Central, The New York Post, Success, and many more. Listen in as she brings you experts in the psychology of life. They may be New York Times bestsellers, key players in their profession, or people who have overcome tremendous obstacles in life and are here to share their story to help you live your best life. Let's get to it. Stay tuned for our next Chaos Crushing guest. Here is your host, Dr. Colleen Mullen. Thanks for joining me here at Coaching Through Chaos. Today, we are tackling the topic of fear. Specifically, we'll be exploring the cultural phenomenon of how fear has taken over our technology and media. We'll be doing this exploration with Dr. Patrick Lockwood. Dr. Lockwood has written the book, The Fear Problem, How Technology and Culture Have Hijacked Our Minds and Our Lives. Before we get into our conversation, I want to tell you a little bit more about Dr. Lockwood. Patrick is a fellow therapist I met online a few years ago and has become a personal friend. I've admired his way of discussing topics he's passionate about as he likes to really dive deep into the subject matter and find the research to back up his positions. He's Midwestern born and although he's now living and thriving in LA, he holds his traditional Midwestern values of living with honesty, integrity, and a neighborly attitude close to his heart. Patrick has had extensive experience working in every level of mental health and addiction treatment, and he's currently an adjunct professor at California Lutheran University and the program director at PCI Westlake Centers. Stay tuned for this in-depth look at how fear has encroached in all of us and our culture through technology and media in ways that we might not even be noticing. We're going to get into it right now. This podcast is brought to you by Podcast Launch Experts helping business owners increase their visibility and authority through podcasting. Visit podcastlaunchexperts.com for more information. Dr. Patrick Lockwood, thank you for being on the Coaching Through Chaos show with me today. No problem. Thanks for having me. And I'm excited to get into this because fear is, well, it's a prevalent problem and you really spell out how it is a prevalent problem, but I mean, everybody relates to having fear. Sure. And the first thing I want to get into is actually the subtitle of the book. So the book is The Fear Problem, How Technology and Culture Have Hijacked Our Minds and Our Lives. Right. Now, I suspect that there's a story behind this subtitle. I think it's pretty fascinating. Can you tell me how that came to be? Sure. Um, So the the gist of the story is something like this. Uh, Leading up to um, the 2016 election, uh, before even Donald Trump, et cetera, was on the scene, I had noticed that essentially many of the people in my life, uh, professionals, lay people, every kind of person, was just becoming increasingly you know, incensed with different topics in the political world, in the economic world, in the social world. It, it just seemed like there was a, an awful lot of fighting, arguing, uh, nastiness had been growing uh, pretty, pretty exponentially, it seemed like, both in the online world and even in the in the real world. And what I was worried about was 
that there must be something going on that's causing this this uptick in the general nastiness we have to each other or towards each other. So mm-hmm. so what ended up happening was I started kind of digging into you know what's really going on and kind of looking at how news is consumed and looking at how um, you know technology platforms, apps, social media, etc. function. And what I kind of put together was uh, not a very complicated idea, but a very straightforward, um, not well-discussed idea of the fact that the way that these technological miracles, and I think they are miracles, I think it's phenomenal that we have um, an, an insane amount of power in our smartphones that can do things that calculators could never have done and computers in the 80s could never have done, right? Absolutely. We right. didn't, we didn't, we barely had computers in the 80s. Right. Right. Yeah. And Let it, alone carrying around such a powerful device today. Yeah. I mean, the, the vast majority of what we know on the planet can be basically found through your phone nowadays. It's, mm-hmm. it's pretty astounding. So I think technology is phenomenally wonderful in that way, but it also has this downside. It's a double-edged sword. What I figured out was that because of how these platforms work, uh, because of the way our culture is built to handle these advances in technology, it actually kind of, it makes it so that we're more sensitive and more fearful is the the basic thesis, is that because of how our culture is and because of how automatically reinforcing this technology is, given the idea that you can instantaneously talk to 5,000 followers in one tweet, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and you can express to the world, theoretically speaking, some version of distress or anger or whatever. And that can get you positively reinforced by 5,000 people with 5,000 likes, right? This reifies the idea that, oh, wow, you're really going through something terrible when in reality, you might just be having a bad day. And, <laughs> yes. um, and yet now we have to, we were kind of teaching ourselves that things are more serious than they are essentially catastrophic yes experiences when you know that 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 otherwise you know 20 years ago would have just been at home slumping on the couch but now it's oh the world is so bad and they tweet it yes and and they get that reinforcement yes and then everyone collectively either jumps on that ship with you and also confirms how terrible the world is or they challenge you, which just reinforces the idea that you should defend your position because we're, we're awfully defensive creatures, right? Mm-hmm. So essentially, I think that it's this double-edged sword of it's great that we can talk to each other and it's terrible because it makes us delusionally believe that life is this tragic dumpster fire and everything is chaotic and the world is falling apart. I mean, you know, there are corners of Facebook and Twitter, et cetera, where if you spend enough time there, you'll start to think that everyone's out to get you and that, you know, the world's going to fall apart because of Donald Trump or because of Hillary Clinton or globalists or whatever it is. Right. And right. that's just absolute nonsense. You go to any random coffee shop or restaurant, people are just there doing their thing, having a meal, talking to friends. No one's panicking. The world is not on fire, much as we might be led to believe by climate change activists, etc. Now, climate change is a problem. All that's true, but the panic doesn't actually serve us. Yes, and that's a great statement that applies in lots of ways in life, that panic doesn't serve us. And 
you mentioned that fear is is a necessity, right? Yeah. Um, and and that it's growing out of control in unnoticeable ways. So that's a Correct. noticeable way when you talk about the technology and one tweet can get 5,000 people agreeing sure. that you're having a bad day and now maybe they're having a bad day because they can empathize with you and they're mm -hmm. feeling it. What are the unnoticeable ways that fear is growing out of control? So I think the simplest case I can make for that is the idea that Things that were once no longer a big deal, kind of like we were talking about earlier, are now all of a sudden a big deal. And we're just kind of accustomed to it by now. So like um, the easy kind of uh, cheap shot would be something like a politician says something a little off color or a little not politically correct or says something that offends a certain group of people. And now everyone loses their mind about it. And that's now a, a normal and an acceptable response because it's as if some great injustice has happened. But the truth of the matter is people have been saying horrifically stupid things since the dawn of time, and people don't lose their minds because we have some natural mental calluses to handle the fact that people are sick or stupid or whatever it is. But thanks to these technology platforms that garner all this positive reinforcement over the simplest faux pas... Uh, of whatever political or party or whatever ideology doesn't matter, anyone can now be uh, lambasted for even the simplest of things, uh, even a miscommunication or a misunderstanding. So we're very defensive and tribal and fearful in the sense that you've said something that could remotely be construed as damaging to my group, my identity, my belief system. And now we lose our minds. And that's a, a fear-based proactive aggression response. Yes. Uh, th and that's, that's great. And I think of like one of my pet peeves when I watch the news is, and of course, and, and I, I tend to watch both sides of the fence, whatever fence I'm, <laughs> I'm on, mm -hmm. but what, what you're describing is exactly one of my pet peeves that goes on in like our news culture, even sure. it's, a, it, it's a perpetuation of like what goes on on Facebook and Instagram yeah. with the, the statements that can get taken out of control, but they will literally take one statement that was made and if it was made on a Friday morning, you'll hear nothing else other than that statement being analyzed by a group of five over here and a group of five over here uh -huh. and everybody jumping in about what their opinion is of these like five words sure. that were said by somebody three days ago. And that's all you'll hear. And sure. on one hand, I'm like, is there not anything else anybody can talk about? Mm -hmm. And on the other hand, I'm like, who are these people and why does anybody care what they have to say? Right. So that's the unnoticeable ways that it just becomes accustomed to us as part of our culture. Yeah, I think the 24-hour news cycle, which is emergency and crisis focused, mm -hmm. is definitely one of the major um, offenders here. I remember an interview that Jon Stewart did once upon a time, I think with either Chris Wallace or Bill O'Reilly on Fox News. Mm -hmm. And he said that the 24-hour the news cycle was created specifically for 9-11. Because it wasn't like that prior to 9-11. And it's this kind of immediate threat urgency thing. But because it became a profitable business model, now it's something we have to do all the time. With every tweet by the president, every tweet by Pelosi, and every, every statement by every world leader is now a crisis. When none of us have any of the context of why these people are saying half the things they're saying. So it's just our automatic bias and assumption, which, as you well know, doesn't get us very far in life. Mm -hmm. Right. And we all have them. <laughs> yes. Yes. Right. So for those listening, if they think they are not biased, we all have biases. You bet. They may not be things that are offensive to people, but they are biased. Yeah. And so, you know, and then you get into describing two types of fear. 
instinctual and learned. You know, can you help us understand the difference between the two? Sure. I'll speak as uh, simplistically as I can because there's a, a giant debate between people like Lisa Feldman Barrett and uh, a guy named Adolphs and and a, and a bunch of Joseph Ledoux. A bunch of people are arguing about the concept of fear, etc. But the, the short version is something like this. We have these instincts that we've needed over 1.3 million years as mammals to survive, right? And these instincts are basically just automatic reaction profiles for kind of reliable um, events that happen in nature. So one reliable event that happens in nature is people threaten our life, right? Mm -hmm. It's an unfortunate fact, even though we live in a very civilized society here in the United States, once upon a time, there was a good chance that you might get killed any day, right? Nowadays, that's not even close to the truth, but we have this hardwiring, this instinct, I call it that says, I need to look out for immediate threats to my physical or psychological well-being. So that would be someone pointing a gun at your face, or someone choking you, or someone physically assaulting you, etc. These are things that are instinctually fear-inducing, that'll, that'll make us either act out in a fight, flight, or freeze uh, response, mm-hmm. or some other learned variant of that. So that's an instinctual fear. An immediate threat to one's physical safety or one's relationships because we need relationships to survive. Then we have learned fears. So learned fears are things like we might call like phobias, for instance. So like a fear of spiders. Just imagine a spider crawling along the wall and unbeknownst to you kind of um, creeping down from the ceiling and landing on your head. For most people, they don't like spiders too much. I'm not particularly a fan of them, but I don't hate them. Um, because we have this, we have this lengthy, lengthy history of being killed by bugs. So we have very sensitive, uh, touch receptors on different parts of our skin in the top three layers of our skin that go, okay, this light touch could be a breeze or it could be a bug that bug might kill us. So we have these innate mechanisms that help us easily learn what to be afraid of. So we have an easier time learning to be afraid of certain stimuli that kind of replicate you know, evolutionary phenomenon from years and years and thousands of years ago. But we can also learn to be afraid of totally nonsensical things. So like, for instance, sure. clowns. That's a lot what of, I was thinking of, a, right. Yes. A lot of people hate clowns. And it's and there, we have no evolutionary threat in our history that I'm aware of that's like a clown. But because clowns can be murderous, um, et cetera, et cetera, we can learn to associate this oddly shaped, oddly colored person-like creature that's violent and nasty and malicious and laughing incongruently with a violent rage, we can learn to associate that with very, very scary. So we have the ability to learn to be afraid of things based upon culture, based upon life experience growing up, based upon trauma, whatever it is, right? Mm -hmm. But we also have innately scary things that are directly threatening to our survival. Does that difference generally work? Absolutely. Absolutely. And then in thinking about it in that way, like, is one harder to control than the other? I would think the learned one, maybe because we learn it, we can unlearn it. Would that be accurate? I mean, that's the standard model of exposure therapy and CBT. That's Mm -hmm. the standard uh, cognitive approach to it. I mean, essentially, you can extinguish fear conditioning for most types of learned um, behaviors. I mean, you know, a lot of what happens in the military, for instance, in basic training is actually trying to decondition um, that fight, flight, or freeze response when it comes to threats to your physical survival. So you can even 
uh, to a degree, extinguish the learned like, oh my gosh, someone's pointing a gun at me. What do I do? Right. That uh, instinctual type of fear. Right. And so, and that's the great thing about being humans is we're extremely plastic creatures. We can change and shift with the quote unquote right environment. Now, there's always a debate about the degree to which that that's possible. But generally speaking, you know, we can we can unlearn things. But some things are just very difficult to unlearn. Like uh, this is not to state a, a political preference on my part, but just as an easy example, easy target. Mm -hmm. Most people are terrified of Donald Trump because they think he's either a moron or a bad person or he's going to get us into World War Three or he's going to mishandle the coronavirus or they have these these fears about the guy. Now, you, you can make all sorts of rational arguments mm -hmm. to try and dispel the fear about the guy. The main problem, though, is that we have these social systems and these online systems that constantly reinforce and validate that fear. Every news headline, like one of my favorite examples is, you know, the 24-hour news cycles like Fox News and MSNBC and CNN. Mm -hmm. I don't know if you notice the colors that they use, but they use red, for instance, and there's always an alert and a sound that alerts you, kind of Pavlovian conditioning. There's a sound that alerts you that something bad's happening, right? It's newsworthy. So they're actually conditioning fear about the president when, but these news channels present this color and this noise and this tone that makes it seem like it's the end of the world. So as much as we could have a rational conversation about how not threatening he really is to our survival, it doesn't matter because all these social systems that we kind of place value on news channels, social media, friends, see him as a terrible person. Mm -hmm. So there's just no point in talking rationally about it. Just in kind of looking at the social phenomenon that has gone on around him is pretty fascinating. It is. It's absolutely fascinating. And, you know, it's, it seems to me that we just have this desire to stick to the the narrative that works for our tribe. You know, that's kind of mm. one of the things I, I blame a lot in my book is the tribalism. Yeah. Can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, for sure. So I think for me, I, again, I'm, I'm not an evolutionary biologist or an anthropologist. So I, I'm, I'm kind of speaking a little bit out of my discipline, but I think I have a decent understanding of the concept. So to the best of my knowledge, the last time our brain seriously changed was about 5,000 years ago, roughly 5,000 years ago and all the years prior to that. We lived in smaller enclaves of people, tribes, if you want to call them that. Um, and even to this day, there are still plenty of cultures on the planet that are tribal, right? The Maori, etc. And how I see it is we have this hardwiring, this, this built-in... Um, us versus them detector. Um, you could call it a tribalistic instinct, which is kind of the phrase I use in my book. And this tribalistic instinct was formed in a cauldron of circumstances that were necessity oriented, where if you weren't in tight with your group of 10 or so people that were your tribe five to 10 to 20,000 years ago, then we wouldn't necessarily have survived for very long because those 10 or so people were the people that kept you alive. They fed you, they hunted with you, they bred with you, they, they did everything that was necessary for your survival and your emotional well-being as a, as a creature. So because we've needed this tribalistic instinct prior to kind of 
cultural intermixing on mass and uh, lots of migration and technology revolutions and all that stuff in the last you know thousand years or so uh, we've we've definitely got this old hardware that's not quite accustomed to being intermixed with and being um, um, and reading numerous different types of people from different types of tribes and trying to kind of let's say make sense of the other quite well. And I'm not saying that we're innately racist or innately um, any of that kind of nonsense. What I'm saying is we're innately not very sophisticated when it comes to people that we're not familiar with. That's what I'm saying Mm -hmm. specifically. And it's because we have this, like, I need to be part of my group because my group is good for my survival instinct, Mm -hmm. Um, which I think most people would generally agree with. And if if anyone wants to push back on that, I am perfectly happy to be shown where I'm wrong about that. Um, sure. And I think we see this just in, in neighborhoods and big cities where we see people of, you know, similar um, nationality backgrounds, sure. right? You sure. know, kind of congregate in the same places. I think that's a, a certainly a basic way that people orient themselves is sure. staying around the people who they know best or at least can relate to best. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, if you come here to L.A. where I'm at, I'm sure it's the same there in San Diego. It's, you know. There's Koreatown, which is yep. highly populated with Southeast Asian Pacific Rim cultures. And then where I live here near Burbank, you know, there's a, a great deal of Armenian individuals that are just fully focused and loaded there. So, I mean, it's it's not weird. What's weird is how that, that very primitive, overly, I would call it like dumb instinct of ours can be so easily hijacked by things like politics mm-hmm. or race or gender, or gender identity, or sexual orientation, all of that gets kind of like put on top of, layered on top of this very primitive, are you in my group or not? And now that we've seen for at least a couple of decades since the, you know, since the late 90s or so, we've seen the political thing being used more so as a weapon, even though we have recorded history of like the political party thing being used in a tribal way in the 40s and 30s, it, it's definitely become much more popularized in the last couple of decades. You know, the the race tribal thing has been a big deal in this country since its inception. Um, the sexual orientation thing has been a big deal for the at least the last 40 years. Mm-hmm. So we, we're seeing all this progression of tribalistic responses based upon identity variables. And I think that's part of what's driving our madness and our fear. So that's how we kind of orient ourselves uh, a lot of times and yeah. and have instincts to congregate and everything else. And, and our brain is very much involved in how we regulate our fear. Mm-hmm. Would you mind explaining that just a little bit so that um, we can understand, just to give us a basic understanding of how our brain regulates fear? Because this means that even though we might want to behaviorally do something, our brain is controlling the actions, correct, based on on how the fear, how prevalent the fear is. Most of how our brain works is in patterns, in networks of neurons, right? So neural nets, if you want to call them that. Mm -hmm. and. And we have, generally speaking, divided the brain based upon like cortex and cortical areas versus subcortical areas like your amygdala and your hippocampus and all that stuff. So the, the unfortunate thing about our emotional process or our affective process is it's mostly unconscious, not within our control. I can't challenge you to get angry right now. I would have to actually do something that would trigger something within you that naturally makes you angry. 
Um, so the things that are more kind of, let's say, stimuli oriented that we don't really like self-create, so to speak, intentionally or volitionally is the word they use, are our midbrain areas, our hippocampus, our amygdala, our hypothalamus, our periaqueductal gray, these different areas that are involved in motivation, affect, threat, safety, all this stuff. But then we have this cortex, this stuff that's on the outer layer of the brain. Um, it's not particularly thick, but it's definitely very powerful and definitely well connected, hopefully, to parts of our midbrain. And this cortex is subdivided into different areas, but basically we have these cortical areas that are, that are excuse me, responsible for processing information, for making sense of things, and then for regulating our subcortical areas, our midbrain areas. And things like our orbital frontal cortex, our anterior cingulate, et cetera, in our, in our cortex are responsible for dampening or shutting down our threat or fear responses. And if they're offline, then we're just going to be very reactionary. And then what happens is our midbrain kind of overwhelms, to use kind of Dan Siegel's terminology, kind of overwhelms our cortex. And that happens when we're in a state of panic or or rage or whatever it is. But for the most part, we can typically do pretty straightforward things to attenuate how overwhelmed we feel. But there are certain cases where that's not the case. Right. In, in hearing all of that and how the brain just kind of can take over based on how much fear is there yeah. and how it's regulating it, that's why it's so important when people who struggle with some fear, with some anxiety, to practice those things that can calm them down physiologically so that as you're doing that, it's helping calm that fear. And then you can act more rationally rather than out of the panic. Well, that's the hope, right? So so <laughs> my, my argument near the end of the book is that the best medicine is preventative medicine. Right. I agree. We yeah. all we all know that if you've got mental health training, I've got mental health training. We we learned that in grad school. And mm -hmm. you know, it's just, preventative medicine is always way cheaper before there's a problem. So the simplest thing is just not pay attention to nonsense. So in terms of preventative medicine, stop watching fear hijacking things like uh -huh. the news. Yes. Um, but then there are things we can do to supposedly like head it off at the pass. So we can try to cope more immediately when we start to notice ourselves starting to escalate. So the moment you notice you're starting to feel offended or upset or confused or whatever it is, you can actually do something to cope then and there. So it never has to escalate into an online fight or a fight with your romantic partner or your boss or your family at the dinner table. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Like we can breathe well before it has to be a fight. Yes. Yes. And certainly shutting off the news and not participating in those kind of things is one of those things that will get you avoiding getting overstimulated in the in the immediate as well to even, as you said, just avoid it. Yeah. And, and so then practicing those things, if you do step in the mud, as I say to my clients a lot, mm -hmm. you, um, you then, right, breathe, get yourself out of the situation take back what you're, you know, say, Hey, this isn't where the conversation was intended to go and try to, as you said, cut it off at the pass. Right. Exactly. And it's just hard because we're so quickly, simply, easily, positively reinforced by our families, our friends, mm -hmm. our social media followers, our coworkers, when we get into this primitive mode, like, again, 
we're very simple creatures in the sense that we're not as sophisticated as we think we are. I, I make this pitch all the time in, in my practice, in my teaching, and in my social media world where we, we live in the delusion that we're more sophisticated than we are because we have cars and we have educational systems and stuff like that that the other animals supposedly mm-hmm. don't have. But the truth of the matter is we're still we're, we're much closer to baboons or actually um, we're much closer to bonobos and chimpanzees, if I recall correctly, mm-hmm. um, than we are to some kind of brilliant space alien that is sophisticated and all wise and all knowing like we, we're, we're not that. And people who think that tend to get into a lot of primitive trouble. Um, I, I think the best thing we can do is acknowledge that, yeah, there's a part of us that likes the drama. We like the fight. We like the fear. We like the the tribalistic you versus me. We like th- we, we like that because it's it's what's comfortable. It's what our, our it's what our instincts know. It's what our cultures reinforce. Mm-hmm. So really kind of it requires a pretty dramatic shift in self-perspective to really fight the fear problem, in my opinion. Yes. And and know when to take a break from those things, right? We might like oh, yeah. a, a bit of it and knowing when to take a break from it. So, you know, and knowing what setting is maybe okay to dip your foot into the drama of it sure. all. Um, and on that note, you talk, a, you know, we talked about the social media and this is a lot of this is about mm-hmm. how the culture online gets to perpetuate the fears in one direction or the other mm-hmm. but does fear dictate an attachment actually to our phone through this like are we are we locked in to be attached to our phones out of fear what i would say is that we can easily develop um, an unrealistic attachment relationship with things that are not human. So the easy example that most of us have had at some point in our lives are transitional objects. Most people had a a pretty significant emotional relationship with a teddy bear or a blanket at some point in their early life. Maybe they still do, no judgment. And, (laughs) and I mean, there's a stuffed turtle here at my house. So again, no judgment. My fiance loves uh, the stuffed animal. So, um, (laughs) We have the capacity to grow an unreasonable attachment to different objects. And I think because the the smartphones we have, for instance, are, how do you say this? They are, they're often associated with real life connection and real life positive reinforcement, even though we know so far, at least, that the intensity of the, let's say, relational areas in the brain being um, activated is pretty similar to a real life person, but not quite all the way. So it's like you kind of get most of what you want, like being like seeing a half naked person, you're like almost there. You almost get to see what you want to see. Mm-hmm. That's kind of how it is when we use uh, technology to relate to each other. So actually, I think what happens is we develop these unhealthy attachments mm-hmm. to our phone, like an unhealthy attachment relationship in therapy. Yes. And we kind of get half of what we want because what we're really designed for is face-to-face contact. That's what we're really designed for. Right. And that's, what, that's what's actually fully reinforcing and actually calms down our emotional distress, our central nervous system. I, I love how you just worded that, that it's, you know, we almost get what we want and what we need from online attachments or even like that's even a texting when people and that's we live in this culture of the dating apps and there's always that piece missing and Mm -hmm. 
I don't know about you, but I encourage my clients often to say like, don't spend a lot of time mm. on the phone texting people. Like decide mm. if you're attracted and you think you want to have a date and go meet for coffee. Yeah. Like, because you need to be face to face because there's that intangible thing that comes when you sit face to face with somebody that you cannot get from texting. Sure. I mean, absolutely. With all my patients, especially if they're struggling with relationships, mm -hmm. it's never, ever, I mean, the, the rule of thumb that I use with most of my patients is never have any kind of legitimate conversation via text or social mm -hmm. media or apps. Oh, if you yes. really care about the person, yes. sit down with them, have coffee. It's worth the drive. It's wor whatever. Um, in LA, it's a drive, but like it was worth the drive. Long drive. <laughs> yeah, yeah. One of my one of my best friends. I have to drive like forty five minutes to see, and it's worth it every time because I love the guy, and we always have such deep kind of not necessarily emotional, but pretty deep conversations, and we connect really, really well. And it's just not the same via text message. Yes. And that's even with couples. I mean, we're yeah. on a little derailment here, but it's the same thing. People are scared. So yeah. they text, they say, well, we had this argument last night, so now I need to fix it. And they will get into pages and pages of text messages with each other. And it still does not fix the problem because they don't, there's that piece missing that just can't be translated in a text. Mm -hmm. uh, so, so Absolutely. Like they, I, I love that of that there's this piece missing and we just get almost what we need. And no matter what we do, we're not going to get that full 100% experience of another person through a device. And that goes to then all the other fear-based posts and tweets and things that keep things going because then we have to then, then we fill in the blank with something that is often misconstrued or influenced you know, by others that we think, oh, well, if this is the one missing piece, let me just put that in here. And it may not be congruent with what you needed or where you started in that side of the argument. Mm -hmm. Well, I'm definitely going to be taking that bit uh, and thinking about that later today. So fear is out of control and there's always consequences to things happening. Yeah. Uh, what are some of the consequences of, of us letting our fear get out of control collectively, essentially? Well, I, I'm in the book I go through, I spend three different chapters talking about consequences to individuals, to cultures and to the world as a whole. And um, the shorter version is it seems to me that we have increased the frequency and intensity of un necessary conflict. And I want to emphasize unnecessary because conflict, as you well know, uh, that's why I've always loved the name coaching through chaos because <laughs> it's, it's so true. Um, conflict is perfectly normal in any relationship. If you care about the person you are bound to disagree and you are bound, it, it's, it's impossible to have a perfectly rosy uh, relationship. If you're a living, breathing person, you're different than every other person you've ever met that you're also similar, but you're also different enough that there's going to be conflict. The difference Absolutely. between regular conflict and unnecessary conflict is about scale and about topics, in my opinion. So we're fighting over things like words. We're fighting over things like pronouns. We're fighting over things like, what did Donald Trump just tweet? Most of this is nonsense. And there's no good reason why we should be fighting about it. If we basically respect people, we'll use their pronouns that they want us to use. If we basically respect people, we won't say anything racist. 
why on God's good earth we have to rehash any of the thousands of things a day that are nonsense makes no sense to me whatsoever. I can't, it just, it doesn't compute to me. So we fight about things so unnecessarily. I mean, just spend five minutes on Twitter looking at like popular hashtags or uh, trending topics, most of them having to do with money or politics or the coronavirus or whatever. And you see people fighting over nonsense. It's ridiculous. So that's what I mean when I say conflict, unnecessary conflict is getting out of control. Mm -hmm. So that's the number one consequence. Yes. Unnecessary conflict. I believe you talk in the book about some of the individual consequences are things literally like addictions can be born out of that. Is that correct? Is that one of the consequences? Sure. Yeah. I mean, I, I would say, and I, I'm not anti-pot in any way, shape or form. Um, mm-hmm. I'm, I'm, I'm a fan, I guess you could say. Mm-hmm. But one of the reasons I think that we see such a high rate, a high prevalence rate of substance use disorders in the United States I mean, we consume more, we consume, I think, 80% of the world's prescription drugs, if I'm not mistaken. Uh Um, And we're like one, one hundredth, one tenth of the world's population, something like that. I forget. Um, And we consume like 60% of the world's illicit drugs. Uh And 80% of the alcohol as well. Yes. Yes. Uh, so, it's, it's such a phenomenon. So I think there's a reason that we are numbing ourselves so much. I think there's a reason we're coping, if you want to call it that, so much. And I think one of the reasons, not the only, not even the primary, but I think one of the reasons is because we're in a constant state of conflict. I think there's also uh, a meaning problem that we have, a lack of meaning. I think there's other issues, but definitely if we're constantly afraid, if the world's always about to end because of Donald Trump, if the world's always about to end because the trans are being oppressed, if the world's always about to end because, you know, racism, if the world's always about to end because of whatever, right? Pick your scary bad thing, right? Mm -hmm. Not diminishing that those things don't exist in real life. I'm just saying that the fact that they're being talked about in such a way that the world's about to end, I might want to get consistently hammered, you know? Well, yes. And then you put that in the context of the lives that we live, where we are being overstimulated just in general by living. We go to our jobs, we tend to our families, our loved ones, carry on our relationships with those people who we will have conflict with, even if we love them dearly. We're all, as you were saying, we're all different. We come in with our own baggage and at times it's going to be difficult. And we're doing all of that. And then you want to relax and you put on the TV or you turn on or you grab your phone and start scrolling and all of a sudden your your the angst that you already brought to the couch is now then just being like internalized because you're also in this little bubble where the social media stuff like you're containing that in that moment in your head so mm-hmm. uh it, it adds to it and it can become overwhelming in a way that you're not realizing because you're already overstimulated right um, so So then, yes, of course, then we get into things like numbing ourselves through substances. Now we're getting towards the end of this chat here. What's the solution to all of this? How do we calm the collective fear that dictates all these aspects of our lives? Well, I think it's it's one of those things where... Uh, normally I could be idealistic and talk about, you know, changing the way that the news companies run or mm-hmm. changing the way that the president tweets or whatever. But the truth of the matter is that's that's all nonsense. And we know it's not going to happen because those people are being positively reinforced through money or mm-hmm. social status to keep doing these, I would call them sick behaviors. So 
I think the best thing is is grassroots change. I think trying to shift culture at the grassroots level always works best because uh, I don't know about you, but all, in terms of both my clinical work and my personal life, I see that most people tend to buy into ideas if it's given by uh, a friend or if it's given by uh, if it's role modeled, for instance, by a family member or a friend. In fact, because we're so simple and so primitive, I think it's even better if it's being role modeled by a friend. It'd be great if I could convince, you know, um, the president or Jeff Bezos or something of that nature to just mm-hmm. try and tone down the rhetoric and just be more thoughtful and all the stuff <laughs> I talk about in the book. But the truth of the matter is it's probably not going to happen. So if we can do our best to individually role model um you know, not reacting in this tribalistic or reactionary manner um, when we're talking about things, that's best. Like one of the things that I do on my Twitter, I'm I'm pretty open about is the idea that I don't like dunking. Dunking is, you know, kind of talking bad about people, et cetera. I'm like, I'm, I'm anti-dunk, you know? Oh, and I know I, that term. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, so a lot of the people who are trying to troll people, et cetera, you know, they engage in mm-hmm. dunking, they make fun of them, they post memes, et cetera. And I'm, I'm, I'm trying to not do that. I fail, but I, I try not to do that. <laughs> and I try to kind of convince my mutuals to not do that as well, Yes, you know, because I think that adds to the, the tribalistic us versus themness. And I think the more that we can kind of take some personal responsibility for how we contribute to the problem and just kind of set our house straight the better we'll act with people. And maybe it'll become more sexy to kind of be compassionate and not be as reactionary. But mm-hmm. making non-reactionary behavior sexy is going to be a bit of an uphill battle because that's just not how we're built. Yes. And I, I, I'm i often talking to, with my clients about, you know, in order to change behavior, it's that's the uphill battle, right? To go against the grain. Yeah. And so if everybody in your group is doing one thing and you're like, yeah, but that doesn't sit well for me or mm-hmm. I need a calmer existence or I want a more peaceful existence, then you'll have to act differently. And it's hard to assert that. And uh, I wanted to highlight what you were saying about yourself. You said, I try, right? And so these things were, you know, if you are making an effort to yeah. do those things and not participate in things that don't meet your need or help or aren't going in that uh, way of encouraging fear and going against that pull, mm-hmm. you know, it's not going to be a hundred percent all the time, right? You will trip up and you'll, you'll dump in uh, with the dunking every once in a while. Right. Um, and that doesn't mean that, that you're, that you fail at it. it. I mean, we're human. We, if, if you are like, I love the 80, 20 rule, even though we were just talking about it in relation to all the substances, yeah. it, it, it applies so much in life. And if 80% of the time you are doing something that is bringing you more peace, that's 80% more than you might be doing right this second. Sure. And so it's really important. Um, yeah. and keep in mind and give yourself a bit of a grace in, in that. So, Dr. Patrick Lockwood, my friend, yes. I we have to wrap up and I definitely want uh, the listeners to know where can they find you online? Sure. I think the most accessible place to find me is on Twitter. Uh, I think my handle is at psych, P-S-Y-C-H, P Lockwood, my last name. And then uh, you can also find me on minds.com with a similar handle. And then uh, you can find me at my website, patricklockwoodhealing.com. 
but you know, Twitter is probably the best place. I'm happy to chat. I'm happy to talk through ideas. I'm happy to um, not necessarily give advice, but point people in the right direction if they're struggling with something. Uh, my DMs are always open for that purpose. Very good. All right. Well, thank you so much. I was looking forward to this chat about your book and um, to uh, let others know all the wisdom that you have on this fear problem. So thank you so much, Patrick, for being with me on the Coaching Through Chaos podcast. Thanks so much for having me, Colleen. If you would like to find out more on the subject, you can find Dr. Lockwood's book, The Fear Problem, on the coachingthroughchaospodcast.com bookshelf. And since I'm mentioning it, we have a brand new website to make everything easier that you might want to find connected to the show. So just go to coachingthroughchaospodcast.com and you can find the entire catalog of back episodes, all the show notes, ways to support the show, and of course, we have this great new bookshelf page that features all of the books and products ever featured on the show. If you want to stay in touch with me between episodes, you can find me. I'm at Dr. Colleen Mullen on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Say hi and let me know who you'd like to hear on the show or which episode has been your favorite so far. Until next time, let's hope you're getting some calm between the chaotic moments of your life. Take care.